You're listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action. Thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi, everyone. We have with us today Tina Yang from Waddell Phillips. Uh, she's a plaintiff side class action lawyer. Hi, Tina. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Suzanne. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, so I'll just start with asking you a bit about yourself. Um, just tell us how you became a class actions lawyer, what the trajectory of your career was. Right. So uh, I became interested in, in class actions in law school. I did uh, a capstone course at law school. Uh, which uh, focused on case management, and that was how I got into class actions. Um, the idea of collective actions has always interested me, uh, really, in terms of uh, a civil litigation process, which uh, has the capacity to to affect mass change. Uh, so I uh, was was always interested in working class actions. I did a little bit of class actions defense when I was an articling student. That didn't really fulfill me <laughs> in terms of, of my professional goals. Uh, and then I, I ended up at a firm that specialized in, in plaintiff side class actions about uh, two or three years into my into my practice. And uh, I've, I've been doing plaintiff side class actions ever since. Great. And how long have you been at Waddell Phillips? I have been there for uh, just under a year now. I started uh, last September. Tell me a bit about, uh, we're here to talk about certification today. So uh, my first question, I guess, is do you think courts in Ontario grant certification too readily? Well, it may not surprise you to know that I don't think that courts in Ontario right. grant certification too readily. I, I, do, I do sympathize with the sort of surface level perspective that many cases do get certified and, and then uh, the, the idea that, that certification is is meant to be an even playing field and, and maybe lopsided numbers indicate that the playing field is, is no longer balanced. But the truth of the matter is, is that certification is not intended to be an even playing field. It's not a comparison of which two positions are, are more meritorious uh, or are more correct, legally speaking. Certification is a forms test, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. a procedural assessment of whether the action that you've brought has the shape of something that is well suited to being prosecuted collectively. And uh, as I'm, I'm sure we've seen with, with the class actions that have proceeded, lots of things can be prosecuted effectively uh, on, on a collective scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and as long as uh, plaintiff's counsel and defense counsel put in the work to identify the appropriate class, um, to identify procedures that, that are effective to, to litigate the case, um, I think that the test is actually, well, the old test, but uh, right. I know we're not talking about that. I, I think that, that the elements of the test work well to, to weed out cases that uh, either because there aren't tenable claims, because the class is, is uh, unable to be defined appropriately, et cetera. I think the test actually works well to, uh, to, to winnow out cases that are, are not uh, in the correct form. And, and since that's all the test is, is intended to accomplish, uh, I, I don't think that, that certification is granted too readily. Just to be clear for the listeners, we're talking about certification today, but we're leaving predominance and superiority and the changes uh, in that regard under Bill 161 to another podcast, so another episode. So uh, we're just talking about certification minus that component today. So uh, then let me ask you, Tina, do you think... Uh, obviously merits uh, are not considered on certification, but do you think courts sort of implicitly consider the merits? Do you think they subject the case to a smell test sometimes? I do think that that happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that it's necessarily inappropriate. Two things. Uh, the There is a bit of a smell test built in to the two-step common issues analysis, whereby uh, plaintiffs have to establish uh, not just that the proposed common issue is capable of class-wide assessment or resolution, but that there uh, is some basis in fact evidence that the common issues exist at all. And that in and of itself is, is uh, sort of a, um, a judicially imposed smell test. And I, I, I don't think that, that anyone is suggesting that um, certification should be such a low barrier that even, 
even cases where it's it's very obvious that there's no marriage should should be allowed to proceed to be litigated. Right. Um, and and like I was saying, I do think that the current test works that balance well. So there there is that little bit of a sniff test in the common issues assessment, but the the rest of it is focused on on the 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 form of the action and the the, the procedural aspect of it. When the class proceedings act first, first came about, it was certification was really supposed to be a just a, a sort of low initial barrier then you get onto the merits. So do you find defendants are circling back to that now that they're consenting to certification so they can get the case tried on the merits? Is that a trend you're noticing? I feel like we talk about this all the time and have for many years, this right. this trend of consenting to certification. Uh, there's certainly numerous cases that I've had where the defendants have consented to certification because they just wanted to get onto the merits. And I think that that uh, is uh, wise in cases where certification is is fairly clear cut. Mm -hmm. Um, I have had cases where that has not happened and uh, it has not really ended well for the defendants. Um, I, I do, I do sympathize with the, uh, the urge to defend vigorously, uh, when, you know, if, if a defendant truly thinks that they've done nothing wrong, it can be, uh, obviously, uh, difficult to to consent to you know to anything right because mm-hmm. uh if, if, if their position is is that the nothing's nothing's gone on why should there be a class action at all I, I do understand that impulse um but i think that uh you know good defense counsel uh manage that impulse and uh and explain the the benefits and there's certainly lots of benefits to, to consenting to certification first of all typically because there's uh, an effective and beneficial to both sides process in terms of focusing issues, um, perhaps making concessions on some more nebulous portions of, of, of the class or dropping subclasses, for example, that might, you know, that might not be uh, part of the core, the core claim. I, I do think that, that the process um, is beneficial for everyone when, uh, when the parties are working towards a consent certification, because I, I think what I've experienced and what I think is generally the case is that it does help uh, effectively narrow the case down to, to sort of what, what the core of the wrong is and what we're actually wanting to litigate about. What's the push and pull when you're negotiating a consent certification? I mean, what you know, the plaintiff obviously wants as broad a class as possible, the defendants want to narrow the class. What else is negotiated on a consent certification? Uh, typically, the, the two big... Uh, the two big things are uh, the claims, uh, so that's the common issues, uh, and sorry, the claims as reflected in the common issues, mm-hmm. and uh, the the class. Uh, so uh, I do quite a lot of privacy class actions, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's actually one area where the class definition is often a bit more hotly contested than it otherwise might be. Uh, in a product case, for example, you you typically you know either you you have the defective hip implant or you own the defective vehicle or, or whatever. Right. Um, there's, uh, but there, there's a the class of, of, of um, collective actions where the, it's, it's a bit nebulous whether uh, certain harms that the, the plaintiffs are trying to perpetrate um, are harms as, as recognized in the law. Like, for example, if you were involved in a privacy breach and, and your information was stolen, uh, but there's no evidence, uh, and typically at certification, there's not a lot of evidence on this. Uh, there's, there's no evidence at certification whether uh, the information was posted online, whether um, there's been, there's been um, out-of-pocket harms suffered, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And, and leaving aside my, my personal opinions on that, uh, that, is, that is obviously a, an area of, of contention uh, in terms of uh, that, that is a, a, can be a bar to consent certification or, or that... Um, a consensification process can can work out to, to the benefit of, of both sides, um, and then of course the the claims. Uh, again, often we will drop claims that uh, don't necessarily uh, add um, a great deal of potential for recovery. A breach of contract and and a tort claim, for example, and uh, sometimes the breach of contract case is so clear cut, and and that gets us to where we need to go uh, in terms of in terms of liability and damages. Uh, so uh, then it becomes, uh, you know, if if 
it saves us the hurdle of having to to, to fight the certification battle, which, as we all know, can be uh, very time-consuming, mm -hmm. uh, very uh, expensive, um, and you know, that's it, it's to the detriment of the class if, if we have a prolonged battle that we can avoid, right? Um, so it's it's just like in any litigation, you you take a look at sort of you know the pros and cons and and what the net benefit is to to the plaintiffs and to the class, and um, that's that's how we move forward. So I, I have definitely had uh, consent certification processes where we have um, we've dropped a, a claim or two, or we've really uh, refocused on on just a, a narrow handful of claims because uh, that's all that we we need to uh, to actually litigate again to sort of get to the core of the case great and uh, and if defendants contest certification do you, do you generally find that they adopt the scattergun approach and you know fight on every single um, element of the section 51 criteria or do you find that they are selective well um, <laughs> I will say that typically uh, the real the real fight at certification is uh, almost always on one or two uh, parts of the test. Mm -hmm. um, I, again, I, I sympathize with the impulse. If you're going to fight certification, I suppose there's, uh, from the defense perspective, uh, I suppose there, there's sort of, uh, you know, uh, what's the harm in, in throwing everything to the wall and seeing what sticks. But of course that just leads to, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, an unfortunately, expanded certification to fight, uh, bigger records, longer FACTA, longer hearings, bigger cost awards. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I, I personally wouldn't do it. And uh, I think that, like I said, the, the real fight is typically limited to one or two things, um, one or two parts of the test. Uh, 5.1a, the, the tenable cause of action requirement is, is often conceded. Um, uh, often, if if there's actually a real issue about uh, the tenability of, of the pleading, um, that gets brought as a separate uh, motion to strike um, or, a, or just a bifurcated certification process. I would say 5.1e is often is often conceded. I think you know to be fair to my friends on the other side of of the bar, um, they they typically um, are. Cognizant that that the the representative plaintiff uh, criterion is is uh, a particularly low threshold, and and they don't you know they don't go after the the plaintiff personally unless there's there's a real conflict that they've identified. Uh, but by and large, uh, the the most vigorously contested uh, the most vigorously contested certification battles focus on uh, either some combination of identifiable class. Uh, preferable procedure and the common issues of course is, is the big one and of course courts don't take kindly to defendants who use the scattergun approach right if they if it's not if it's not actually contestable that there's a you know a representative plaintiff that will represent the interests of the class or that there's a reasonable cause of action but the defendants go after that anyway then that's that's a good way of not getting the judge on your side presumably yeah absolutely i mean i have i have had sort of both things happen i have had judges that were initially not uh, not particularly interested in uh, in one element sort of be be talked around mm -hmm. uh, by effective advocacy or um, I've had cases where sort of the evidence starts uh, starts changing direction in the middle of the certification hearing uh, because the judge's interest is peaked and, and they ask for more on on a specific point uh, but typically the the judge. Is is somebody who, of course, uh, is is very experienced with class actions, um, has a good sense of, of how everything is going to play out before the hearing even happens, and uh, you know there's there's certainly been occasions where I've had certification judges who uh, have expressed some frustration that there was a, a large chunk of the certification battle that did not have to be fought, um, and uh, I've I've been on both sides of that as well. Um, uh, accused of expanding the record unnecessarily or, you know, also <laughs> sitting by with my popcorn while the defendant gets <laughs> lambasted. Um, and, and that often, I think that is certainly a trend that we're seeing that's played out more and more in the costs award at certification. So do you think, uh, do you think defendants or plaintiffs even, you know, try and avoid expanding the, uh, the certification motion with the view to costs in mind? Do you think they're, they're deterred by a potentially large costs award? Oh, I mean, I think it, it depends on 
certainly on the on the plaintiff side, we try to keep the cost down again when we're bearing the cost uh, ourselves, or even when we have uh, a funder. Uh, it's still obviously in, in everybody's best interests to uh, to keep those those figures down. So I, I think that's probably a, a larger motivating factor for us than it is for the defendants, who often are are, are quite well resourced. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, you know, the costs are are a, a fairly small proportion, I think, of of what they're dedicating overall in terms of resources to their defense. Um, but I. I do think that it is a, a good trend, to be to be frank. I think that um, it, it is causing people uh, or parties on, on both sides to at least take a, a, a closer look at, uh, at what they're putting forward on certification. And uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's worth it. The, the expanded risk uh, is, is worth sort of uh, trying a, a more comprehensive approach, and, and sometimes it's not. And I, I do think that... Um, that uh, we think about it more now than we we necessarily did, I don't know, five or ten years ago. There used to be the perception that once a case certified, then it would generally settle. Was that ever the case? And if it was, is it no longer the case? I think that was that was what we were all promised. Right. Um, no, I'm I'm joking. Obviously, <laughs> uh, I think I think it, you know the 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 circumstances of the certification uh, obviously have some impact on that. Um, Sometimes, uh, if there's a, a very contentious certification process, um, whereby the evidence is is actually fairly comprehensively canvassed, um, that can uh, that can make the settlement process easier. Uh, there's, um, you know, there there are some cases, frankly, that I think the defendants put up a huge battle at certification because. Uh, that's a more winnable battle than than the the test on the merits, uh, and again, I think that that is sometimes what plays out in these cases you see where where a settlement follows fairly quickly after certification. Uh, but there are uh, certainly lots of cases where, um, again, and I, I do think that that this this um, this uh, I guess methodology is, is on the rise where mm-hmm. where defendants uh, again are are less worried about certification because the, they're more confident about the merits. And so they, they, focus, uh, they focus their, their defense on, on the post-certification stage. Um, and I, I do think that defendants have gotten less, less wary of class actions generally, I think. Um, it's a combination, I think, of, of experience. They've had for, for large institutional defendants, they've now defended uh, at least a handful of, of class actions. Uh, there's obviously very sophisticated defense counsel that they have available to them uh, who are advising them on, on these sorts of things. And I think that uh, it's, it's no longer um, a situation where when faced with a, a fully certified class action, it, it seems you know sort of insurmountable to actually to actually push forward to uh, to a common issues trial, for example. Right. Obviously, some kinds of cases are more amenable to certification than others. What kinds of cases are they that that are more amenable? I I will say you know obviously the the sort of the cleanest the cleanest type of case is one where uh, there's really uh, no no action or uh, reliance or no. Uh, no, no plaintiff or active participation or class member participation where uh, a defendant has done one thing to a large number of people and, uh, and the allegation is that that one thing was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's rarely that simple, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously, uh, even if you have, like, for example, a, a defective pharmaceutical or medical device product, then you get into the issue of variable damages and and uh, whether the core causation question gets you far enough in terms of, of litigating the case. Um, I would say that the way that the certification test stands right now, there's probably some consumer protection cases that are more amenable to certification, um, depending on on how tricky the, the workable methodology is uh, for price fixing cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's always something, you know, <laughs> right. if you, if you have, again, if you have like a defective car, is it really a dangerous defect? If you have uh, a, 
something that, that seems more amenable to certification because it's focused to one institution or one one organization or one well-defined class, of course, then there's there's always issues of of um, of, uh, of damages again. So it's it's hard it's hard to get a a, a very clear cut, uh, very obvious case. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I guess sometimes those do come along. Like um, thinking, for example, of uh, of um, let's say the Takata airbags, right? Uh, where it's clearly dangerous um they were it's well documented uh, where the devices were installed who was affected and uh it's it's clear that um that uh there there can be recovery for you know the the, the costs of, of repair and so on yeah i guess even in that case though there's, there's always something to contest isn't there so yeah, it's just exactly. uh, like for example the toyota unintended acceleration cases which uh, right. actually you and i both worked on yes um so there's um you know, there's a reason why part of that case settled before the rest of the case, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, so it, there's, there's always something. But again, I think that um, we do have, luckily, a, um, a sophisticated, flexible, um, you know, a, a bar, frankly, of, of very good litigators. Uh, we're very lucky, I think, on the plaintiff side to, to have the defense bar that we do have. And uh, there's often creative solutions where, you know, um, half the case gets certified or even settled and, and uh, we, we just fight about the other half and, and that sort of thing. So uh, Let's look at Section 51A, the, um, the reasonable cause of action requirement. So, you know, following the Babstock decision, do you think that criterion is going to be more closely looked at by the court? They're, they're more willing to um, maybe find that it doesn't disclose a cause of action, even though there's not a full factual record at the certification stage? That was sort of a drive-by in Babstock, I thought. Okay. Um, that that little criticism of, of the reliance on novelty. Um, I, I don't think it's an invalid criticism, um, but I, I think it's it's a bit of a straw man. Uh, I I personally uh, have never advanced an argument that something completely fanciful um, was uh, was required to you know to to be allowed to to proceed because it was novel. Um, I think that. This, and this harkens back to sort of the idea of whether there is a, a sniff test. Um, I, I think that we all want the judges to still employ basic common sense mm -hmm. and, and obviously their, their expertise. If, if there's a, um, a cause of action that's a novel cause of action that's pleaded that uh, there's absolutely no foundation for, um, that, uh, that is, is truly fanciful, um, I think we're all comfortable with the judges exercising their judgment and discretion to uh, to deal with that, uh, with without a full factual record, um, it's you know I I think that uh, in the case of a waiver of tort, for example, that's something that's been so so heavily canvassed uh, in the law without uh, a conclusion, and you know everyone is sort of waiting for for Babstock for the for the Supreme Court to to make the decision, mm -hmm. um, and and so obviously that was a, a driving, major driving force in, in, in their decision. Mm. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm really honestly hard pressed to, to think of any, any example where um, uh, a, a plaintiff has, has put forward something that it just has no, no connection to the reality of how our law works um, and, and t attempted to shield it under this, this novelty argument. Uh, I, I, I just, I don't really think that, um, we're that worried about it. There's, there's certainly appropriate mm -hmm. cases where a, a novel cause of action um, can, cannot be tenable because it's, it just isn't part of our law, right? Right. Um, so, and, and I think that's fine. To be, to be honest, I, I, I don't, I don't think, um, I don't necessarily think that uh, that the, the decision Babstock is, is, is correct. That the analysis is correct. Um, and I think there's, you know, certain important uh, aspects of, of the collective action that, that the court didn't necessarily take into consideration about mm -hmm. that. Um, but the, the process I, I'm, I'm fine with. And I, I think that um, I, I don't think it will materially change anything about the 51A uh, analysis that, that courts undergo because I think they're already, you know, sort of utilizing their, their good sense when they're, when they're deciding certification. Moving on to the definition of the class, I mean, do you do you struggle with defining the class? How do you how do you work that out? On uh, can you give me some cases where you've struggled to define the class and and how you resolve that? 
Yeah, so I would say that the, the privacy class action uh, that, that I discussed earlier are a good example of that. Sometimes uh, we don't have the facts um, available to us in terms of uh, who is actually affected. And then, of course, there's disputes about who who is affected, you know, even if your privacy is breached, for example, again, um, does that mean that you're actually affected? And if I, I say yes, and of course the defendants say no. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, it's more clear cut after you you go through your uh, your pre-certification uh, evidentiary exchange because, of course, both sides, um, particularly defendants, have have an obligation to to disclose what evidence they have about the the size and scope mm -hmm. of, of the class. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of of your case to the judge and the judge decides which which makes more sense um, th sometimes uh, there's uh, a dispute about uh, like I, I had this was actually uh, another privacy case but the issue was not in, uh, the idea of who was affected but uh, everyone who was involved in a specific program was affected and then there was some dispute about what it meant to be part of the program right um, and that that was resolved basically just through negotiation with, with defendants who, again, were represented by reasonable counsel, and the goal for them wasn't to obfuscate. Um, that was just their understanding of what the mm -hmm. facts were, and we had a different understanding. Um, I think that, um, obviously, the, the umbrella purchasers question was, was a big one before, before that, was, that was resolved. Uh, it's, there's, there's often... Um, Often the, the issues in terms of class definition uh, reflect uh, the other issues uh, mm -hmm. at certification, right? Like which, which, claims, which claims are certifiable, um, which, uh, which types of things can, can you sue about, right? Uh, so, um, and that's, that's not, like for example, the, the effect of the waiver of tort um, decision will be, I think, also felt in, in 5.1b. Uh, in terms of, of narrowing, uh, you know, who has uh, the direct cause of action, right? Right. So uh, I, I, I think that uh, there's, there's not often, other, other than strictly factual disputes, it's not often that uh, defining the class is a standalone issue. So the, the two or more persons part of the identifiable class uh, requirement, if there's no evidence that a certain number of people actually want to pursue their interests as part of the class action, do you, do you think that actually matters? Well, my practice is typically to have at least two representative plaintiffs, so mm -hmm. I don't often have the two or more persons problem uh, in, in that, you know, the very strict technical sense of it. Uh, I think there certainly have been cases where the defendants have, have put forward evidence that um, a proportion of, of the class or, or a significant number of class members uh, are 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 not in support of the class action, um, but I think that, you know, and and again I, I sympathize. Ob obviously, as a defendant, your your instinct is well. If people don't want this, why are they pursuing it? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it, I think it's it's pretty uncommon that a uh, a defendant has fully canvassed the legal issues and potential entitlements with the class members, for example, before asking them if, if they're, they're interested in, in pursuing the class action. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to take a, a paternalistic approach uh, to, to this because I, I, that, I think that is a valid criticism sometimes of, of the plaintiff's bar. But I, I do think that uh, sometimes people do not know uh, what the what the extent of their rights are? I think um, you know sometimes people are motivated by uh, fear of reprisal, um, f fear of uh, you know sort of ripple impacts in terms of a business relationship or or a, um, a service provider. Uh, I think there's lots of reasons why why people might not want to pursue uh, a class action, uh, in, including you know sometimes it's it's, it's small personal values. Uh, mm -hmm in terms of damages uh, for individuals, but that doesn't mean that there's no value to the class action. Um, I think it's probably more relevant to, uh, you know, sort of our case viability assessments that we do as plaintiff's counsel in terms of whether it's, it's worthwhile pursuing a case um, than, than it really is, frankly, to, the, to whether a case is, is suitable for certification. 
Um, and I, I'm, I don't think that I've ever seen a, uh, that type of defense at certification succeed at defeating certification. So then uh, moving on to the um, common issues, I mean, f- crafting those can be quite tricky, right? So uh, in what ways do you try and, um, I guess, challenge proof your common issues? Or uh, have you been able to frame them so that you can just get them through certification quite easily? Or do you find yourself sort of reworking them throughout the hearing? How does that work? Yeah, well, I mean, I, th- I think at a, at a very basic level, of course, we craft the common issues so that they are, in fact, common. Um, mm-hmm. No one's trying to assess, you know, negligence damages uh, in common at the common issues trial. Um, I, you know what? I shouldn't say nobody. <laughs> I'm sure it's happened. Um, but uh, certainly, of course, um, one way to make them challenge-proof is, is to make sure that they actually fit the test. Um, I, I think it's not uncommon for them to be reworked uh, sometimes because, uh, you know, you, you see that judges are leaning certain ways mm-hmm. in terms of, of whether they think uh, a claim is really uh, valuable to be pursued at certification, um, whether, uh, you know, sometimes it's not until all the evidence shakes out that you realize that uh, there is no uh, evidence that, for example, one specific subclass was part of, uh, has, has this valid claim, for example. That type of reworking certainly happens. Um, and uh, again, we're, we have pretty, uh, pretty proactive judges. Um, I've certainly had judges rewrite my common issues. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes uh, it's it's actually I think it's probably more often the framing of them that that the judges are concerned about. Right. Uh, so um, typically, I would say by certification, we all have a sense of what claims are certifiable, and and we've made those adjustments before we you know head into the hearing itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, sometimes judges want to place limiters, uh, you know, based on on the arguments they're hearing, um, and. Uh, or, or they want to, uh, you know, they want to add factual background questions, which they think uh, it's important to, to set out uh, clearly. Uh, often uh, I will look at something and be like, well, it's implicit in, in, in sort of asking this that you have to figure out this. And, uh, and sometimes uh, the, the judge, you know, wants, wants it set out clearly, X, Y, Z, before you get into the, 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 the legal common issues. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think there's any any particular tricks that we have. We just, you know, focus on on making sure that uh, that it is genuinely a common right. issue. Um, I, I suppose you'd have to ask defense counsel what they think our tricks are. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly a fluid process. Um, I I think it's it's not uncommon for um, there to be at least a little tinkering. At a certification hearing, is that true generally of everything that there is some kind of tinkering as you go through the hearing you sort of think oh well the judges the the judges leaning this way or the judges responding to this in this fashion let's uh let's see if we can present you know common issues or something else this this other way i mean it, it, is it very responsive when you're going through a certification hearing i would say so yes and i would also say uh, and again i think that blame lies on both sides here but um sometimes it's like pulling teeth to get an answer out of defendants in terms of what they're actually contesting. You know, we'll have FACTA, 70-page FACTA about every single part of the certification test, and we show up at the hearing, and they say, well, we're really only contesting, you know, these five common issues. And I'm like, okay, well, are you serious? <laughs> we, could have, we could have talked about the wording of those common issues in advance. You know, it really robs everyone of the opportunity to, to, to engage in, in, uh, in a process where we we rework things without having to go to the judge because mm-hmm. judges are not, you know, there to sort of, uh, to, to settle uh, squabbles between us. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, if, if there's a, if there's, um, a, a question about something that can be resolvable amongst counsel, I think it's important that we all try to do that. Um, so, uh, I, I would say that we, we do, uh, often tend to rework things, uh, at the hearing. Um, but a lot of the time that's, uh, that's not even necessarily reflective of how we see things are going with the judge. Um, but it's, it's to, for example, if, you know, if we don't know what the, the real, uh, 
you know, the real uh, dispute is uh, until we get to the certification hearing. Um, sometimes it's, it's actually a pretty quick fix to, um, to, to deal with that so we, we don't have to, to have that fight at the mm -hmm. hearing, you know? Um, so uh, I, would, I would say yes to your question in terms of, of whether it's a really responsive process, and, and I would add, I guess, I guess that it's, it's not just responsiveness to, to what the, the judge is, is expressing, but, but also to, um, to sometimes a, a sudden clarity in what, right. what the defendants are pursuing. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to the, to the last criteria, you said that doesn't do too much work at certification. I mean, how, how closely do courts generally look at the, the suitable rep plaintiff criterion? Um, I think, you know, I, I shouldn't say that it doesn't do too much work. Uh, I should say that it's often not that contentious because um, we put, uh, I think, a lot of work into to finding suitable representative plaintiffs. Um, and uh, typically, uh, of course, if, if somebody becomes unsuitable uh, by reason of sudden availability or something, it's, it's uh, a fairly straightforward process to um, to find another class member who wants to step forward and, and uh, represent the interests of the class. Um, I have, you know, I've, I've faced sort of um, challenges uh, on 5.1e relating to uh, arguments about uh, the nature of the conflict that, that the proposed rep uh, has to have with the class in order to be unsuitable. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have found, frankly, that I think judges don't have a lot of time um, for that. Um, I think it's only pretty clear-cut cases of conflict on the common issues that um, that, that judges uh, really find themselves taking a, a hard second look at the rep plaintiffs. You know, there's there's lots of decisions where our, our case management judges have, have said, basically, I'm not really interested in any, uh, you know, attacks on, on the the uh, the rep plaintiffs, you know, sort of their personal qualifications. Uh, of course, um, we don't have the, uh, there's the no typicality requirement. Um, I've certainly had cases where um, the, the rep plaintiffs' uh, claims were, were unusual. Um, and some, uh, some of the provincial uh, legis class action legislation actually has a provision whereby the rep plaintiff does not even need to be a class member. Right. If, uh, yep. It's in the interests of justice that that, that take place. Um, and of course, you find often that there are, um, again, you know, fear of reprisal, fear of sort of uh, whatever relationship that, that the, the class members have with the defendants will be damaged. It's it's a heavy burden for, mm. for a representative plaintiff to come to come forward in in those cases, and I think that judges recognize that. I think that um, you know, unless there's uh, something something actually wrong with uh, with the representative plaintiff's relationship with, with the class members, then I think that uh, um, the judges are pretty uh, pretty forgiving, um, mm -hmm. as, as I think they ought to be, and, uh, and I think that defendants know that and, and, and typically um, respect that. Uh, do you think we should have that? Uh, that um that requirement, you know, in, in uh, British Columbia, it is, I believe, that the representative plaintiff doesn't have to be a member of the class. Do you think that we should have that here? I think they have it in British Columbia, perhaps Alberta and Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. um, I, so I think it's, uh, the, the precise wording is, is that if it's in the interest of justice, um, I have looked into this. I, I don't think that it's well-defined what in the interests of justice right. means. Um, so that's issue number one. Issue number two is that the unfortunate reality is that there are sort of less scrupulous plaintiff's counsel out there. Um, and I have seen cases where some of those less scrupulous uh, unnamed counsel <laughs> have, have put forward uh, purported representatives who are, are you know, plainly ill-suited to, to represent the class. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I acted as uh, sort of Ontario not intervener, but uh, the, the sort of multi-jurisdictional multi -jurisdictional carriage process they have. Mm -hmm. So I'm counseled on Ontario claim where plaintiff's counsel in uh, in another province had put forward a representative plaintiff who had actually um, was, uh, was barred from the class definition in our case because he was part of the allegedly fraudulent scheme and profited okay. <laughs> from it. So, uh, 
you know, technically under under that provision, uh, in uh, in uh, the other province, it was it was he was able to be put forward. No, uh, no decision has been rendered by the judge as to whether it's actually proper. Um, I I think that uh, the practical effect of that provision would probably be more trouble than it's worth. And I think we do have tools that, that make it easier for, for people to step forward without having to resort to, to having non-class members as representative plaintiffs. With regard to the litigation plan, is that a big thing at certification? Do you, um, obviously you put a lot of work into it, but how, how closely do the courts look at it? Uh, is it generally, for, for in a lot of cases, boilerplate, or do you you know, is it very closely tailored? Do you leave it till later? How, how does that work? Yeah, so we typically leave the litigation plan until we have sort of all the evidence we're going to have at mm-hmm. certification, of course. Um, and uh, oftentimes uh, things like, for example, the evidence about the size of the class, the evidence about the, the scope of, of the class, that, that definitely informs uh, the drafting of the litigation plan. Um, I would say that <clears throat> much like a lot of our documents at certification, there's a lot of boilerplate uh, because uh, there's a lot of uh, common, in, in the colloquial sense, there's a lot of common issues. Right. Um, and there's often, you know, if you have a specific type of case, the, the litigation plan works fairly well um, with, a, with a, litig- uh, a case that, you know, another case that you might have down the road. Um, but we do, you know, we do, uh, we do tailor them. I, I think that the courts do look at them. I've, I've certainly had cases where um, the courts have, have uh, asked, or the judge has asked for uh, some clarification on, on points of litigation plan. Um, <clears throat> uh, I've never personally had a judge order me to amend my litigation plan, but I've, you know, I've certainly seen it in decisions. Um, I think that that everyone, and to be fair to defendants, again, I think the defendants respect that it's a it's a living document. Um, it's not uh, it's not meant to be a set in stone uh, answer to how you're going to litigate the case at certification, um, and they rarely attack it on the basis that there's there's uncertainty or that there's mm-hmm. uh, that there's uh, uh, perhaps gaps in, in methodologies and so on. If you think about sort of what certification is trying to Accomplish. Um, if the idea is only to weed out cases that are not suitable to proceed as uh, as the class action on, on a class wide basis, then it doesn't really make sense. And I think courts have recognized that to to have uh, the shape of the litigation plan um, be uh, a real barrier mm-hmm. uh, because the litigation plan can always be amended. And if, if the underlying case you know is is suitable, then just <laughs> fix your litigation plan. Right. Right. Yeah. And so following on from that, then, do, do you find, um, how much of the time do you find that the the court sort of certifies conditionally that it sort of says, well, you know, we'll, we'll let you uh, amend your pleading or fix the common issues or whatever and then come back? How, how often does that happen? I think that, uh, again, I, I think that defendants find it frustrating and I sympathize because it feels like a moving target. Mm. But again you have to look at the the underlying point of certification. It's to figure out, um, and, and it's, it's baked into the legislation itself, right? Like you can, uh, you can proceed in, in, in other ways if, um, if uh, a, a, a class action is, is not the, the correct, um, the correct method. But the, <clears throat> the idea is to, to figure out not just whether it's suitable to be a class action, but what the shape of that class action should be. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that the judges, the judges say, I, I don't think that this should be certifiable, but I'll give you a chance to, to amend your pleading or rework your common issues, et cetera. I think almost always what happens is uh, this is a certifiable case, but the common issues uh, need to be tweaked or, or you need more, uh, like you have evidence, for example, about mm-hmm. something, uh, but you need, you need more uh, particulars pleaded to, to make it a tenable uh, action in your, in your pleading, et cetera. Uh, I don't think we're, we're going back and, and reworking things that aren't fundamentally certifiable cases. Right. So then, do you think certification performs a valuable, uh, is a valuable tool then? You know, even if, 
even if it might be obvious that something should be certified, it's you. It sounds like you're saying it, it works out what the shape of that certification is, or what the shape of the action going forward is. I mean, would you would you be in support, for example, of places like uh, Australia where there is no certification step? It's more of a you go forward and then you have to the the other side has to move for decertification if they don't think it's suitable. Uh, do you think we should have certification? Is I guess what I'm trying to ask. That's actually a very interesting question. Uh, <clears throat> I would say that there, there, there really, I do think that there is, the, there is value in the process of figuring out not just whether a case should be certified, but how it should be certified, what should be certified, what it, what it's, you know, what it looks like as a class action. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I would be open to different ways of, of having that come about. I, I feel very confident that if we if we move to an Australian type process that defendants would, would vigorously and actively uh, pursue, pursue the the options available to them. Um, I, I don't know actually how much difference it would make, you know, Mm -hmm. it it changes, uh, it changes sort of, um, what, what the records look like. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that, that the net outcomes would be actually that substantially different. I think again, where, you know, wherever something, uh, Wherever something uh, is is not suitable for certification, you know, a defendant's uh, not going to just sit back and, and let that move forward. Obviously, and uh, if if something uh, is is not in the right you know shape or form, there's uh, claims that should be lopped off because they they won't work or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Again, I think defendants, regardless of, of you know whether it's contesting certification or, or attempting to narrow certification or or bringing a, a, a decertification motion which which is focused on changing the scope of certification uh, I, I don't think that you know like two years on assuming everyone gets to the process within two years um, I don't think that two years on the, the case that you see moving forward would be substantially different right and uh, and then my final question is about the the evidentiary standard at certification I mean do you think the do you think the some basis in fact standard is clear and if it's unclear do you think that's led to an increase in the material that's filed, the evidence that's filed on certification motions? Okay, we're almost at the end, so I'm going to become lightly controversial. Um, okay, great. I, I don't think it's unclear. Okay. I think, I think, some, I think some parties uh, don't, don't like the definition of some basis, in fact. Right. And uh, I think that we're beating this dead horse, and we'll probably continue to beat this dead horse for quite some time. Uh, it's, it's certainly one of my biggest frustrations. I, I think that we all understand what some basis in fact is, and uh, if you if you don't like it, then uh, bring a summary judgment motion. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, okay, that's where I'll, I'll I'll get a little bit a little bit more contentious. Um, you know, I, some basis in fact is is it, it has intuitive. Uh, there's an intuitive understanding. I think it's a very descriptive name. Uh, there's certainly so much case law about it, um, and and yet. And yet, uh, every time you know we get we get fights about, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've I've had to to bring numerous uh, motions to strike sort of the the extent of 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 the evidence presented, um, and we you know we all have have merits creep in terms of of the evidence that we present, mm. and uh, I think that um, again to be fair, I think both sides do allow uh, reasonable leeway. Um, in in that regard, um, but I I think that uh, it's 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 not really that hard to figure out what a basis in fact means. Um, there's a lot of information about it uh, in in our our case law, and uh, I think that uh, some some parties need to just accept what the definition <laughs> means. But then, if there's uh if it's that easy to work out, why do you get some certification motions where there's like you know twenty five bankers boxes full of evidence? I mean, isn't certification that that was the original intention was that certification would be a simple procedural step and then you could move on to the merits. So why is it, it is it this merits creep where you know one side enters some evidence, the other side feels like they have to answer it? I mean, what's what's happening there? Um, well, sometimes it is that failure to, to focus on narrowing the issues. Um, again, both sides can can certainly be guilty of that. Um, sometimes there's just so many defendants. Sometimes it's very complicated. Sometimes, um, 
you know, I, it's it's still technically the law in Ontario, for example, that uh, your rep plaintiff uh, has to have a, a cause of action against each and every defendant. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, although, you know, obviously, I think we're moving away from that, and I, I think that certain judges have, have made comments about how that's probably no longer the case. Um, but yeah, there's there's lots of factual quirks that that mean that a lot of evidence has to be adduced. Um, I, I will say that I do feel like personally my certification records are getting shorter, um, just from from the point of view that I have very weak wrists and it's easier to carry them. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I I I genuinely think that that um, that certification records are getting shorter. That's that's certainly been been my experience. Um, so I, I think that uh, I'm I'm not actually sure I agree with the the premise of the question. Um, but you know there there are cases where there's like I said factual quirks where larger records are mm-hmm. uh, are necessary, um, and and uh, I think that um, there's fairly uncommonly cases where parties are just adducing a lot of merits based evidence. Um, I I. I was part of one of those cases, and I think that what happens is, first of all, um, uh, if, like I said, if there's no clarity about what issues are actually being contested, then it doesn't permit anybody to, to narrow the evidence. Um, I think that if um, sometimes you just need you know, lawyers who are better at, at managing the evidence, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, you know, whether it's an experienced counsel or, um, or uh, you know, a, a client who really wants to tell their whole story at certification, even if it's not necessarily uh, relevant to certification. You know, there's all sorts of things. But mm-hmm. I, I, I will say that I don't think that it is as big of a problem nowadays as it used to be. Okay. Well, that's... Uh... That's a welcome trend then. So uh, I think that's everything uh, I wanted to ask. Tina, do you have anything you wanted to add? or? Uh, no, I think we've pretty thoroughly canvassed the issue of, of uh, non-preferable procedures. <laughs> yeah, I think we have too. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks for your time and uh, have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast, hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins, and the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy.